Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so excited today to welcome Professor Julie Suck, a professor of law at Fordham Law School. Julie is a graduate of Harvard um, College and she got her JD at Yale and her PhD at Oxford. Uh, she clerked for Harry T. Edwards of the DC Circuit. She's the author of two books, two wonderful books, the first one being We the Women, The Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment, and her newest book, which just came out recently, that I just had the pleasure of finishing and really enjoyed and learned a lot from. After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. Julie, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So I have to say, I really um, I really enjoyed the book. And I'm not thank saying you. that because you're on my podcast. I'm saying it because I really enjoyed the book. Um, what made you write it? And, and, and after, you finished, after you finished your first book, what made you go on to write the second book on a similar topic? Great. Well, honestly, this is the first book. Okay. Uh, it just ended up being finished later. <laughs> yes. uh, meaning I really started uh, thinking about this book in uh, the last century, in the 1990s, <laughs> because I spent some time in Europe uh, studying, uh, and I did my PhD in England, uh, which is kind of part of Europe. Yes, uh, and, kind of. <laughs> and one of the things that I really observed, and this is even before I went to law school, uh, was that there were constitutional amendments on gender equality in France and Germany in the 1990s. Right. And they were amendments that were not just about like equal rights amendments guaranteeing equality between women and men, one, something we've been struggling over for a very long time in the United States without success yet. Uh, but uh, in these countries, they had had such guarantees since after World War II, but they were fighting over whether or not to authorize gender quotas. And I found that really fascinating uh, for two reasons, uh, that they were actually talking about gender quotas. Uh, number one, but right. secondly, that they were actually amending the Constitution. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so so I, I it, it was just the beginning of a very long reflection about differences. I was studying political theory at the time before I went to law school, just differences in constitutions, approaches to gender equality. And that always shaped the way that I looked at feminism, law and feminism in the United States. Right. And so uh, so there's a range of topics in compar both comparative law and comparative constitutional law that really shaped my understanding of what the problem is to which gender equality in the law is a solution. And, um, and then based on how you frame the problem, uh, what kinds of legal tools, whether it's anti-discrimination or other mechanisms, are appropriate. You know, Julie, um, and I, I've said this before on my podcast, I usually do a very rough kind of roadmap I send to the guest and then then we work off of that, but we often go on tangents. And you said something, yeah. you said something very okay. striking <laughs> that makes me want to go on a tangent. So I'm going to do that. And I apologize. You, you, you kind of paused over, they actually amended their constitution, which um, I thought was very interesting, or, or you kind of inflected on that. And yes, it's an amazing thing, right? When countries amend constitutions and do important things, but he, because we of course really can't do that anymore in this country. Um, right. But what it hit me though was, was, and I remember I did re think about this when I read the couple of first chapters of your book as well. Are we the only Western country that has a written constitution that was actually ratified in substantial part and whose equality provision was put in, meaning the 14th Amendment, before women could vote? So most of the countries got their constitutions. They had constitutions before, but the yes. constitutions in force date to the 20th century, right. Uh, right. around like after World War One, after World War II. And um, 
were written around the time that women got the right to vote or after. Yeah. And one of the, you know, one of the things that I've stuck my career on is the Supreme Court is a unique institution in all of world history for a perfect Mm -hmm. storm of 10 different reasons. But it does occur to me, it's one thing to be looking at a constitution written after women could vote. And then maybe, and another thing to look at a constitution that's so old and so ancient that its relevant provisions today were all written pretty much before women could vote. That, that Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the, the constitutions that I've been most interested in, uh, the French and German constitutions, for instance, also were written with women in the constituent assembly, right. uh, not in equal numbers to men, but they were represented. Right. Uh, and there were uh, women from all sides of the political spectrum right. uh, in those constituent assemblies. And I think that matters a great, great deal. If you go and look at the constituent assembly debates, um, it is these women who debated about the inclusion of and the meaning of uh, a provision guaranteeing equal rights between women and men. Uh, and also one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book is uh, provisions in constitutions that protect motherhood. Uh, right. Those debates were also really interesting and coexisted with guarantees of equality, which I think is sometimes puzzling from the U.S. perspective. We're going to get get back to your, your book in a second and that point yeah. later. But I also want to say yeah. the, for, the, 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 the relevant equality provision in our Constitution wasn't only written before women could vote. It was written when wives were considered the property of their husbands. I mean, it's it's really a bizarre yes. Step back from it. It's a bizarre thing. We're still using this constitution, isn't it? The 14th Amendment as the basis for women's rights. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, yes. it is bizarre. Yes. And there's actually a wonderful opera about Susan B. Anthony that I recently <laughs> saw before the pandemic. Uh, and uh, the, the moment, I mean, this was also something that was reflected upon at the time. Uh, will the 14th Amendment or did the 14th Amendment actually protect women's rights, including right. women's right to vote? And that was tested. And the answer was no in Minor versus Happersett shortly after the 14th Amendment was adopted. Right. And of course, the 14th Amendment is notoriously the first moment in our constitutional history that we use the word male specifically right. <laughs> in the right. text. It's a great point. So. It's a great point. All right. So, so you talk about over entitlement and over empowerment. And those, so I'm going to say it again, over entitlement, over empowerment. And those themes run from the first word of the book to the last word of the book, basically. Yes. Um, what do you mean by those terms and, and, and how, why are they so central to, the, to your work? So I really began, uh, and just part of what I did in t- taking a lot of the research on gender equality uh, was uh, it was also filtered through the moment of the Me Too movement and the rise of Donald Trump. And my puzzlement over the uses of the word misogyny in our political discourse. Uh, so, uh, so the terms over entitlement and over empowerment are ways of reframing and broadening the lens on what misogyny is. I think we tend to think of misogyny as hatred and animus against women, including violence and discrimination. And I actually think it's much broader or that violence and discrimination are some manifestations of a broader phenomenon. And the broader phenomenon is the way that we think of uh, female forbearance and sacrifice as an entitlement, not only of men, but uh, of society as a whole. So, uh, so I say that misogyny includes the over entitlement of society to female forbearance and sacrifice. 
and pain even. And, uh, and then uh, the related concept of over-empowerment, that is, it's not just women's subordination that shapes misogyny, uh, but, uh, or, or patriarchy, from which I think all this is uh, derived. It's really the over-empowerment of men. And so in order to really do something about misogyny and really do gender equality, we have to focus not just on injuries to women, uh, but also uh, mechanisms in our system that are anti-democratic because they over-empower men. So Julie, if I can get personal for a second, um, I, I've mentioned, I think, here before that in 1971, I was 13 years old and my mother was having consciousness-raising meetings in Ardennes. Um, the, biggest wow. issue they, the biggest issue they talked about was abortion. This is pre-Roe. Yes. And I remember yeah. the, and, and I, would, I would actually listen, you know, 20 minutes here or 30 minutes there to these meetings. Um, and, um, but the other thing that, I, that struck me so deeply at 13, I didn't know how to process it, but what they talked, I'm talking 1971. So we're talking a pre-Roe world and we're talking a world where Justice Ginsburg was just starting, right, to litigate yes. you know, cases. And what my mother used to say, and my mother was um, number one in her class at McGill, but then chose to be a mother um, and, and a full-time mm -hmm. mother. And um, what they talked about was society will never, ever be equal for women until motherhood is looked at as important and in the same way as being a lawyer, a doctor, or a professor. And that, wow. and that the culture has to change to women. I mean, maybe it's 1971. They all want women to be free to pursue any occupation they wanted, but totally free. Absolutely. But they also want women and men, but mostly back then women, to be free to raise a family and for society to look at that as an incredibly important contribution, not in an emotional way, but in a financial way. And that's 1971. And I feel yes. like we've not made any progress, any progress at all since then on those issues, on recognizing motherhood or parenthood as something that society should compensate. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to understand why we have a, an arguably robust law of gender equality in the form of anti-discrimination law uh, with very little progress on yeah. uh, valuing motherhood. Uh, yeah. And there are certain dynamics where, of course, uh, the problem, when, once you say that the problem is animus and discrimination, uh, somehow we've shifted. And we've done this not only in the gender context, but the race context as well, uh, that we focus on animus, but then we see the primary manifestation of animus as discrimination, which is treating differently or classifying on the basis of sex or race. And in the gender context, uh, this obsession with classification as the primary engine of gender inequality uh, has really led to problems when you try to recognize motherhood. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> because that's a gender classification. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, and that's one of the dynamics I've been really interested in because you see regimes of gender equality in other countries uh, that. On the one hand, the German constitution, the German basic law, Article 3, it prohibits sex discrimination uh, in one clause, uh, but it also says equal rights between women and men. And then a 1994 amendment said uh, that the law 
uh, shall uh, actualize equal rights between women and men and eradicate disadvantages that right. now exist, right. uh, in addition to having that motherhood clause, which I mentioned. Uh, so, uh, so I do think that uh, the focus on discrimination and classification has made it difficult uh, to center motherhood as a problem uh, in U.S. law. And I agree with your mother in 1971 <laughs> uh, that uh, I, I don't think that equality could be achieved without fully and not just valuing motherhood symbolically, but society fully absorbing the costs of reproduction. And uh, right now we impose those costs disproportionately on women in a variety of ways. Uh, I was not yet old enough to vote. Uh, or just barely old enough to vote. I think I turned 18 in um, 1993 when the Family and Medical Leave Act guaranteed right. unpaid right. leave. Uh, and I thought by the time I have kids, we'll have paid leave because that was just a first step. Uh, <laughs> and you might have noticed that uh, Senator Gillibrand just introduced for the sixth time in 10 years, the Family Act, the Paid Leave Act, uh, which, you know, 30 years after we got unpaid leave, we still don't have uh, paid leave. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, without a national mandate, I mean, there are some state laws that guarantee paid leave, uh, but without a national mandate, uh, there's a good majority of American working mothers that really don't have access to pay if they take time off to give birth and to uh, care for an infant for a reasonable amount of time. And, uh, and I think that is one of the uh, greatest sources uh, of inequality today, just in the aggregate, the, yeah. the lack of support for motherhood. Uh, and then if you, that's compounded by, you know, forced motherhood <laughs> when you uh, restrict, ban or restrict abortion in the ways that uh, we now do after the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs. We're going to talk about abortion and other countries shortly. But before okay. we before we do, um, I want to tie a bow about on this on this thought, and then ask you one more question about something different. Um, I so my dad, it turns out, took a pretty prestigious job at the same time my mother started having these women's consciousness raising meetings. I'm going to tell a job not as a look at me, Louis lying, because I want people to understand this. He ran the credit card division at American Express, and right. that came with all kinds of privileges and tickets and great things. And I remember thinking at the time. And my dad would work really hard and come home late at night. And, and I remember thinking at the time, um, if you take what all the mothers in Long Island were doing, God, I was raised in Long Island. Just take all, okay. just take Long Island. Just take one little place, slice of America. And in 1971, 99% of people raising kids were women. Not true today, but back then, 99.9%. And I remember thinking, what's more important, making sure American Express car division is successful or making sure these Long Island kids grow up in a functional you know, um, reasonable household that will prepare them for life because that's what they were talking about in that meeting. And I remember thinking, mm -hmm. I think it's more important that the kids live a functional life, you know, and, and, and grow up okay. I just, I just remember thinking the imbalance, because my mother's really was, she passed a few years ago, it was really smart. And the imbalance here was, was my dad was getting all this attention, you know, really positive attention. Mm -hmm. And my mother was being put down. I mean, in 1971, 1972 America, People started looking down at mothers, you know, why, you know, why don't you go? Oh, yeah. And I felt so bad for her at the time. I remember thinking this. Anyway, I just wanted to, we, we have to change this. I mean, it's, for both men and women now, because now there are men who raise kids. We just have to change this. Right. And this was part of 
the conversation in the 1970s. Right. So one of the things that I go into in the first chapter of After Misogyny is the Swedish model that was influential for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's strategy. Uh, And the Swedish model was about the emancipation of both genders because of the importance of caregiving, that it was caregiving was important not only to women, but to men in in order to be a full person. Yes. So um, so the gender emancipation story was to make all these opportunities equally available to everyone. But I think that the mistake was that we we didn't realize that patriarchy was not just a set of legal rules that oppressed and excluded women. It was also an infrastructure yes. of care. It was an unjust infrastructure. And, of and care. perspective and perspective, unjust perspectives, yes. too. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, so I think the way to change it is to then have a just infrastructure. Uh, and part of a just infrastructure is for those who choose uh, to spend uh, most of their time doing the socially important task of caregiving. That has to be socially valued and compensated. And of course, at the time, there were, you know, there's always been uh, a demand for paid parental leave right. of various sorts, not only at childbirth uh, and family friendly policies. Uh, and there's uh, and at the time, there was also a wages for housework movement. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so last time I researched this, which was a year ago, almost a year ago, um, I believe we are the only Western democracy in the world, not Western, only democracy in the world that doesn't have a national maternity paid leave program. The only one in the entire world. Is that still true? It was true a year ago when I researched this. Yeah, I think there are only six countries in the world, democratic or not, (laughs) that that don't have it. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Like, how can we, I'm sorry, I'm going to yell. How can we be so far behind? I don't understand it. I mean, why are we so far? I, I, I don't want to get into the other countries yet, but I want to ask you about prohibition. But before we get to prohibition, why are we so far? Why do we suck so much on this issue? Oh, so, well, one of the things I try to do in the book is instead of just criticizing anti-discrimination law, which I do plenty of, yes. I also think we haven't paid enough attention to our political structures, again, which come from a constitution that was written a long time ago, right. before the country was this big. Right. Uh, and I think we have a lot of political structures that make it difficult to uh, do real policy on these issues. Uh, yeah. we, just to, I mean, if you look at the Swedish example, so they had the same gender emancipation ideology that informed Ruth Bader Ginsburg's litigation strategy. But their strategy was constitution, a different kind of constitutional reform. So the focus was not, we need an equality amendment. Uh, it was more, uh, we need to have political institutions that work. Uh, and in the 1960s, a bicameral legislature turned itself into a unicameral legislature. Uh, they made various reforms towards p- proportional representation. Uh, and I think we, um, I think now we are focused on these issues, although I don't think there is a massive movement to actually change the constitutional structure of our government. Uh, but I think that uh, if you look at, for example, uh, if you just go back and look at uh, debates about something that there has actually been bipartisan support on, including paid family leave, uh, and in the 1970s, comprehensive childcare policy at the federal level. 
right. if you look at uh, the veto points, uh, you'll I think you begin to see that some sometimes our uh, institutions of representative democracy are obsolete uh, and make it very difficult to uh, achieve policy goals that are important in the modern era. So there's a part of your book on every word was interesting to me, but there's a chapter in your or a part of your book um, that I want to really emphasize that even, you know, law professors who teach con law too, like me and, and teach gender issues. Um, and I feel, I feel I'm reasonably well acquainted <laughs> with that literature. Um, I learned so much that I didn't know about prohibition and how, and, and you're talking to someone who I have some vices in my life. Drinking is not one of them. And my life okay. experience, this will get me canceled is, when people get drunk, I just want to leave the room because um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen very few people improved by alcohol, uh, of alcohol abuse, I should say. But leaving all that aside, I, this is going to be this is a ch- I'm going to give you a challenge, and it's really hard. Um, you have a very, very textured, interesting discussion about the relationship between prohibition and the women's movement and and, and kind of gender issues yeah. that I was really new to me. Can you summarize? I'll be quiet for like five minutes, I promise. And can you just summarize all of that like in five minutes? Because I think it's so fascinating. Yeah. So I found it really fascinating too. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I really knew about prohibition before I started looking at the Women's Christian Temperance Union was that it was the biggest mistake of U.S. constitutional right. history? <laughs> right, right. You know, and you feel like it, you know the police just started invading people's <laughs> homes and violating their rights to find bootleg liquor. You know, yeah. And um, so that that was my impression of prohibition as well. And we didn't really uh, think or talk too much about it uh, when I studied constitutional law. And I don't think it's much part of the conversation now. I think recently some people have written some books. Lisa McGurr, The War on Alcohol, Daniel. Okrent last call. There's, there have been books by historians that really emphasize the story of the rise of the federal carceral state uh, and law enforcement and policing as a result of prohibition. Uh, but I think there's this backstory because since our constitution is so hard to amend, uh, it really took a long time for the prohibition amendment to take to happen. Right. Uh, and if you look at the organizing that occurs because of the formation of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which is 1873, uh, around the time of Bradwell versus Illinois. And, and for the uh, non-lawyers and, the, and for non-lawyers listening, Bradwell was the case where the Supreme Court held Illinois could stop women from being lawyers. Women were not to be lawyers in Illinois. Go ahead. Sorry. Right. They could yeah. stop women from being lawyers because women didn't have rights to right. uh, sue or be sued. So it'd be a real problem if your lawyer uh, (laughs) engaged in malpractice because you couldn't sue her. There's this whole regime where women don't have rights and therefore certainly they can't be lawyers. Uh, But but it's an important moment because under conditions where women don't have rights, that means they're completely dependent on their husbands uh, for their livelihood. Uh, Women don't even have parental rights over their own children. Uh, If women do get a job, uh, they're excluded from many jobs, but even if women do get a job outside the home, the husband would actually own her earnings. She couldn't independently hold any property or own her earnings. Unbelievable. Uh, And so when you think about that regime, uh, then there's uh, ad uh, drunkenness. And uh, for those who are unlucky, uh, because if you think about, so this is patriarchy, right? Uh, and patriarchy actually works as long as the people who are empowered do not abuse their power. Uh, but the problem is that the men who are empowered by patriarchy uh, can beat their wives. Not all of them did, but can. 
uh, and the law wouldn't really do much about it. Uh, they'd be more likely to beat their wives if they were drunk. Uh, they can. They could, they could rape all, their. Excuse me. They could rape their wives too. Crashing. They could also rape their wives. Yeah. Uh, and that's because marital rape is not really yes. a, a legal problem right. under yeah. laws of patriarchy. Uh, but so if you just think about the conditions on the ground, women have very few options. They just have to hope that the people who have power over them uh, will exercise it humanely. Uh, but then there are these external forces uh, like alcohol in the saloon. Uh, that actually make it more likely that the people who have power will abuse it, not only in the form of domestic violence, which there was, uh, but also in the form of um, where do the family's earnings get spent? Uh, the man is in charge. Uh, and if he's spending it all on alcohol, there's less of it for the family. Uh, if she gets a job, he could spend all the earnings on alcohol. Uh, so these are some very practical problems uh, that lead uh, women in this position to say, uh, the problem is alcohol. It's not even the men. Uh, the problem is the alcohol industry uh, that's uh, exploiting these men. The saloon, uh, the saloon, saloon specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and but it wasn't just the saloons because the saloons were also connected to just larger uh, the manufacture of alcohol. Right. Uh, that is, it wasn't just like mom and pop shops necessarily. Right. Uh, so and, and so this is an interesting time because. Uh, also, it's not totally respectable for women to be out protesting for suffrage and other rights. Uh, but uh, when they start protesting the saloons in the name of Christian temperance, uh, then you do see women crusading against saloons in large numbers. And the Women's Christian Temperance Union is almost like a respectable way for women to do something that would otherwise be considered quite threatening. Uh, which is to politically organize. Uh, and so that's why the WCTU becomes the largest women's political organization in the United States by the end of the 19th century, much larger than suffrage groups or other explicitly that women's one rights fact, organizations. That one, that, that, that one fact alone, that, that at least some very, very engaged, intelligent women thought it was a bigger, alcohol was, uh, alcohol was a bigger problem than not being able to vote is an amazing thing. I mean, it's an amazing Right. Thing. And it also then they say we need to vote to stop alcohol. Right. <laughs> and that actually that's an argument that has a lot of traction, it turns right. out. Right. Uh, and in some ways, that's a less threatening argument uh, than uh, we need to vote to uh, completely transform uh, everything else. Uh, but uh, but actually, uh, the temperance movement ends up helping the suffrage movement uh, and uh, and also the argument that we need a constitutional amendment to ban alcohol. I mean, in retrospect, that seems like the craziest thing you can think of as a topic for a constitutional right. amendment. Right. Uh, and uh, but then when you go back and see how at least the women's Christian temperance lawyers ended up there, it was largely a reaction. It was a reaction because once women started protesting the saloons, the saloon started uh, asserting property rights. Uh, to uh, remove them right. from right. Uh, protest. Right. And, uh, and also, uh, so, so, so part of it is that it's a reaction to constitutional property rights uh, that are constitutional uh, right to operate a business, uh, those kinds of things, which um, have some success, not total success, but they're related to the ways in which the court eventually uh, protects business and property and contract interests since Lochner uh, and that, that line of cases. Uh, but it's a reaction to the liquor industry asserting the constitutionalization of their rights 
that they say, oh, now we need a, a constitutional amendment that would weaken the industry. Uh, and so if you go back and read, and it's a very interesting time because despite Bradwell, uh, some states do start allowing women to practice law. Right. Uh, so they could, then they could do that without the Supreme Court. Uh, and so, so they start, uh, and so there are women who are lawyers uh, who are attached to the Christian Temperance Union and writing pamphlets saying this is why we need a, a constitutional amendment because uh, everything else that we've tried to do to protest this social problem hasn't worked. Uh, and um, so it's a response to the failure of law. Uh, and uh, and so I try to read the Prohibition Amendment uh, as uh, a way that allowed women uh, to engage in political activity uh, and to uh, instead of just asserting their own rights, uh, trying to weaken uh, what they saw as an overempowered institution, the, the, the liquor industry. Uh, and I think from that perspective, there's some success too, because before you get the huge, the rise of the carceral state going after alcohol, the, the saloons actually do stop operating. Uh, and so to the extent that the saloons are a space, an ordinary space of male drunkenness, right. uh, that just kind of stops existing. Uh, and even the places where people get alcohol, whether in the home or in speakeasies, are more gender integrated uh, than the saloon ever was. Uh, and so that, and also the organizing allowed them to advocate for suffrage. It also uh, helped them, the Women's Christian Temperance Union helped them advocate for other changes to patriarchy, specifically uh, with regard to um, the mother's uh, right to guardianship over their own children, uh, the mother married women's uh, right to uh, own their own earnings uh, if they work. They also advocated for um, access to to work. Right. So so it's a political organization that I think. Uh, and so prohibition, and I think it's important that we see the prohibition amendment uh, as in part a product of that. Although I will say there's this really dark side of it that we shouldn't. Uh, that we should acknowledge. Uh, the dark side of it of, is, of course, that not just the carceral state, there was anti-immigrant sentiment, there was maybe some racism also sure. involved uh, with um, the Anti-Saloon League, uh, but that also speaks to the difficulty of amending the Constitution. The women's Christian, like these were people who didn't even have the right to vote. Right. Uh, they're not going to get a constitutional amendment uh, without finding some powerful allies uh, under Article 5. Uh, and I think that uh, this is a and there's a dark side of every potentially successful constitutional amendment, which is that uh, when you need two thirds of both houses of Congress and three fourths of the states, uh, alliances uh, with some bad guys, uh, white supremacists and racists uh, become necessary to the change that is being sought and often limits the change that you get. Uh, that's a story you could tell about the 19th Amendment as well. Yep. Uh, so I don't I, I don't think that prohibition, uh, when it actually um, gets added to the Constitution and then implemented through the carceral state, is necessarily the vision of prohibition that these women in the late 19th century uh, launched uh, in their campaign. Uh, and so it's a complex story because um, we have to tell the story of prohibition uh, in a way that um, sees the feminist silver lining uh, without necessarily uh, advocating for it as a model. Right. Yeah. No, I, I just thought it was a fascinating part of your book. And um, ironically, on a personal note, I started reading your book in Pittsburgh. I was invited um, to give a talk to some mm -hmm. state judges there. 
and they put me up at the Omni William Penn Hotel. And in the okay. bottom, in the bottom of the Omni William Penn Hotel in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is a speakeasy. Okay. <laughs> and, awesome. And everybody said, if, if you can get in, I didn't go. But everybody said, you should go. You have to wait in line. And if it's too, but I thought, speakeasy in 2024. And then I was yeah. reading it 2023, and I was reading your book about it. It was fascinating. I, I thought the whole, I really recommend this book to everybody for a thousand different reasons. But if for no other reason, the part about prohibition is new and fascinating and I really learned a lot. All right, I want to, I want to talk about abortion. Thank you. I want to talk about abortion for a minute. Um, yes. Before we get to how your book deals with abortion, which is, I think is brilliant, yeah. um, I've I, I've asked almost everyone who's come on post Dobbs, who is, you know, kind of pro choice and and all that. Um, where were you when the Dobbs leak was when you first read it, and what was your reaction? Oh, so you know, I was at a concert <laughs> in New York. Oh no! What concert? <laughs> and, uh, oh, it was. It was a lot of modern new pieces. Okay. I um, I know a cellist who is playing in some of the okay. pieces in the concert, and I think the leak happened during intermission. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> or I, you know, that's when the story yeah. broke, and, yeah. and so I was a little like agitated. <laughs> yes. I didn't want to be like staring at my phone right. while my friend was playing on stage. Right. <laughs> so I right. did it. I you know I waited right. until I got home. Right. Uh, and. Um, so, so yeah, yeah and pretty heartbreaking after that. Yeah. Although I guess I, I don't know. I was, I wasn't surprised. Oh, I was surprised that it leaked actually. That doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but the opinion itself didn't surprise me. And the fact that they did uh, have enough votes to overrule Roe and that they were doing it in this case yeah. didn't surprise me after listening to the oral arguments and just, yeah. just, you know, just observing uh, all the lead up in terms of judicial appointments and uh, all that. Even, so the tone didn't, the to I, even the tone didn't surprise you. Cause it's, I mean, I knew the, the, the tone did surprise me a little. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I think maybe, maybe the tone has yeah. just gotten a little bit just kind of mocking. Yeah. Um, yeah, mocking really serious stuff and serious people like Justices Kennedy, Souter, and O'Connor. <laughs> not, yeah. not to mention Blackman. All right, um, you spent a lot of time in your book talking about how France, Germany, and Ireland um, have dealt with the abortion issue. Uh, Jamal Green was on my podcast in the uh, I don't know. Oh, great! I some, love Jamal. <laughs> so, some time ago, and of course, he did a very similar. Frankly, you know, made similar observations about those countries. Mm -hmm. um, how did those what what are the positive ways those countries dealt with abortion, which is divisive in all of those countries, obviously, um, that we maybe we can learn from? So, well, e each of these countries, uh, they're different. Yes. And I think yes. there's different roles for courts and legislatures. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's the important thing. Uh, the interesting thing from Germany and Ireland in particular is that they really start from the premise that unborn life deserves protection. Right. Uh, and of course, initially, that premise means that a law that actually liberalizes abortion is unconstitutional in Germany. Uh, and uh, But interestingly, while striking down an abortion access law, the German constitutional court says a bunch of things in dicta that uh, give information to the legislature about how they can re-liberalize abortion, uh, but in a way that's a little bit more respectful of unborn life. And the things they say uh, go to uh, the concepts of over-entitlement, 
that I've been uh, weaving through the book, which is that uh, even though unborn life is worthy of protection, uh, the court uh, says it's really important, so you can't liberalize abortion too much. However, uh, it's, it's something that requires the woman's support to protect. Right. Uh, it's really hard to protect unborn life without the cooperation of the pregnant person. Uh, and it's not, you can't extract uh, too much from women uh, by requiring them uh, beyond what, at least in the 70s, the German Constitutional Court refers to as the normal burdens of motherhood. Uh, but interestingly, uh, and, and what they're really saying is that if a pregnancy would create a socioeconomic hardship for the woman, uh, really alter her life, uh, or uh, create a threat to her health or life, uh, those are situations where uh, even when protecting an unborn life is important, you simply can't extract that uh, from the woman. Uh, and so the legislature writes a new statute that basically requires reasons uh, but the reasons are so broadly construed uh, that uh, arguably most of the real life situations in which women actually want an abortion, uh, they can't afford. I mean, I think uh, a lot of the data suggests that it's really like there are socioeconomic reasons why women uh, choose abortions. Uh, that becomes really important in the way that the statute is rewritten. Uh, but it's not um, abortion on demand. Uh, and in right. fact, the the court is very clear that abortion on demand would just not be sufficiently respectful. Uh, but there's a huge evolution because then you get a law uh, that allows abortions for most of the reasons why most women who choose abortions um, end up with abortions. And uh, once the law is rewritten that way, then there's another effort to liberalize when the two Germanys reunite uh, in um, the early 1990s. There's another uh, statute uh, that the court strikes down again uh, but uh, again, the court also says uh, you can, there are many ways to protect unborn life. And very importantly, uh, an important way to protect unborn life, other than criminalizing, you don't have to criminalize abortion to protect unborn life. You can protect unborn life uh, by making sure that women aren't burdened too much right. uh, by pregnancy and right. motherhood. You can protect unborn life right. uh, by promoting the equal sharing of parental burdens between women and men, which would be consistent with the equality provision, uh, the equal rights between women and men pr provision. Right. Uh, you can uh, promote unborn life by promoting a child-friendly society. Uh, and so the court says all those things. Uh, and the law that they end up with, and I think the model that you see across Europe is that generally, uh, and consistent with uh, public opinion, generally abortion is available without regard for reasons in the first trimester. So usually like up to like thir between 13 and 15 weeks uh, in most of these countries. And then after that, uh, for indicated reasons like life, health, socioeconomic, and um, and then, and I think that is a workable framework. 90% of abortions in the U.S. also occur uh, within the first 12 or 13 weeks. Uh, and it's really rare uh, in the second or third trimester. Uh, typically, uh, in the second or third trimester, uh, it's for a life or health right. reason. Right. Uh, and, um, and so I, I think these are workable frameworks which are not consistent with Roe. Uh, and I... I think that, uh, I mean, I think our debate has gotten so polarized uh, 
that even proposing a, a, a ban at 15 weeks uh, is considered a, a radical right-wing move. Uh, but I think the experience of other countries suggests it doesn't have to be. But I, you know, but I will also say that these are the, in these other countries, the abortions that are legal are actually funded, uh, right. whereas we've had, <laughs> right. and the abortions that are indicated for health reasons, which are legal, are funded. Whereas right. in the U.S., we have the Hyde Amendment that uh, that takes funding away, even for abortions that are indicated for medical reasons to save the mother's health. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so I, I think it's a different I think there are different compromises between pro-life and pro-choice that have been reached in other countries. Uh, I think if you combine uh, a, a ban at around 14 or 15 weeks with adequate health care uh, and humane exceptions in the remainder of pregnancy, uh, to my mind, that's a better framework than abortion on demand until viability. Uh, but the state can deprive public to de deprive people of public funding for even the legal and health indicated abortions. Right. Uh, and uh, there is very little access. Uh, uh, you know, I think that we, we need to be very uh, I think we need to be more open minded about how we compare uh, these frameworks. So after I, I, I read Jamal's book and I read your book um, on on Europe and abortion. And when I finished both of them. I had the same reaction, and this is going to sound a little maybe minimalist. I don't mean it, to, or or reductionist. I don't. I don't mean it that way. But the reaction I had is forget law for just forget law and constitutions and, and those kinds of things. Okay. It feels like <laughs> what those countries came to realize: Germany, much of Europe, um, but especially Germany, I think, um, was that it's really important to pay lip service, if you will, and maybe even take seriously the idea that a fetus, a non-viable fetus, is life as we think of life. And what comes next is not a but. It's an and. Because mm -hmm. in our country, it's a but. But there, mm -hmm. it's an and. And that doesn't answer all the questions. And as long as abortion is available on the ground when needed, and when needed is really show up to the woman and her doctor, when needed, that could be for psychological reasons, monetary reasons, whatever. Then we'll, even though we take this other position that life's really important and the fetus is life, this is, we have to balance those two things. And then we come up with when women really need abortions or families need abortions, they should be able to get abortions. <laughs> um, and that feels, it feels both right and wrong to me. On the one hand, I want women on the ground to be able to get abortions, <laughs> period, full stop. Paying lip service to the life idea makes me a little queasy, but maybe that's what we need. Maybe that is the right act. Do I have any of that right? I mean, is that a fair assessment of kind of what's happening in those countries? Yeah, but I think the argument has been in the U.S., not necessarily in law, but you told me to forget yeah, about law. Yeah, yeah. But if you think about the phil philosopher uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson's defense of abortion, yeah. uh, I think in around 1970, 71 in philosophy and public affairs. Yeah. This is the famous violinist example. Right. She says, imagine that you wake up one day and against your will, you've been hooked up. Uh, Actually, Julie, can I interrupt devices. you? I'm, so, I'm sorry, can yeah. I interrupt you? I, I love that oracle. I love that example. I think I have a better one. Can I throw it at you just okay, real quick? Okay, sure. I, I intentionally hit my twin brother with a car, intentionally. Mm -hmm. And I do that so I can inherit all my parents' money. <laughs> and my brother doesn't die, but he's strapped to a machine. And he needs a transplant with a certain kind of bone marrow. 
I'm the only human being in the universe who has that bone marrow. Right. Right. And in the United States, I, and it's a non-invasive, non-invasive operation that I walk away from in three hours out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. Under our law, the government still can't make me give that bone marrow to my brother, even in any state mm -hmm. in the country, even if I hit him on purpose for a bad reason and I'm the only person in the world who can save him and I can do it in three hours through a non-invasive procedure. They still can't make me do it but they can make a woman carry a fetus for nine months. So go ahead. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but I think that the example that Judith Jarvis Thompson yes. uses in the article, this notion that let's just say that the, the thing that's, or sorry, not the thing, the person, that it is actually a person, a yes. live person yes. Yes. Uh, who, if you uh, cut off, will die Yes. Uh, without being connected to your body. Yes. Uh, what are your obligations? None. None. Uh, and um, and so the question, and if you can say that, uh, even acknowledging uh, in the hypothetical uh, that this per is a person, uh, instead of getting into is the fetus a person. Uh, and, and so uh, part of the reason this example makes so much sense is that we do not have uh, as a baseline set of entitlements uh, we don't believe that anyone has a baseline entitlement uh, to uh, our caring for them, right. uh, except when we're talking about women right. uh, as mothers. Right. And then uh, there's a very strong uh, baseline understanding uh, that what happens is natural uh, and, um, and that forcing uh, motherhood is natural uh, and should be voluntary. Uh, and, um, and so, so I think we think of the example of pregnancy differently from other situations in which someone forced to give life to somebody uh, would be looked at differently uh, as outside. Right. Yeah. Uh, and this, this is where I do think that the concept of over entitlement of society to women's sacrifice yeah. is uh, the, the right way to think about uh, abortion bans. Uh, rather than just an invasion of bodily autonomy and privacy. Um, I, it's that too. Yeah. I, I thought you talked about abortion in these chapters beautifully and brilliantly. Um, on Twitter yesterday, or maybe two days ago, or some in some time frame on Twitter recently, uh, mm -hmm. I enlisted my friend Ilya Soman of uh, yeah. – I, I, I only call it George Mason Law School. I refuse to call it the other thing. I was just there. I was there three weeks ago giving a talk. I okay. wouldn't call – and I wouldn't use the name. People laughed. Um, but anyway um, – you make a – I want to ask you a question about abortion and, and, and law, and then I want to make it a little more general, if you don't mind. You make – you start making an argument, I would say. You start making an argument that maybe we should perceive the state forcing a woman to carry an unwanted or unplanned or both fetus to term um, as a takings. And, yes. and, of course, Italy is really one of our nation's leading taking scholar. And, sure. And although he and I disagree on almost everything, he's a good man and has integrity. Um, and um, – First, make your argument as to why it would be a takings. And then I want to mention what Ilya said and then raise the level of generality of this conversation a teeny, teeny bit. But, but why do you think the state forcing a woman to carry a fetus to term against her will is a, take, is a legal takings that requires compensation? So I, I'm not totally arguing that under existing takings doctrine, right. this would be a slam dunk. Sure. No, of course. Uh, yeah. or, even, or even plausible uh, argument. Uh, so uh, when and my effort to go to takings is already itself a second best, uh, meaning um, if we actually took seriously the over entitlement idea, 
we would probably uh, try to entrench, whether through statutory law or even constitutionally, right. uh, some commitment, some general principle that the state values yes. care. Like motherhood. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and that reproduction yes. is something that's socially yes. valuable to the yes. state and therefore should be valued and compensated by the state, you know? Yes. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, conditions of unamendability yes. and legislative dysfunction uh, leave us looking to the constitution that we have uh, and arguments that you could potentially make related to doctrines that we have. Right. Uh, so that's how I end up at takings as yeah. a way of translating uh, a lot of the things that I've been saying about other legal orders into things we already have. So I just want to give you that uh, caveat, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think, and I, I think that um, it's been interesting to look at the cases in some state courts that not necessarily in the takings context, but in other contexts, uh, contemplate the question of whether there, whether there could be property rights in body parts. Uh, and I'm thinking of the 1980s case about the, I think it was a spleen that was removed and then some people built a cell wall on it that ended up being very prop <laughs> profitable. Uh, but I think there have been some steps, not really robust ones, but some steps by some courts uh, that imagine property interests in body parts. Uh, and uh, certainly I think this, there is, Something to be said uh, with the rise of gestational commercial surrogacy uh, for thinking of the womb, uh, specifically, not every body part uh, you can think of as uh, rentable property, but I think with the womb, because of um, the, the rise of gestational surrogacy, uh, it makes total sense to think of it as um, a rentable property uh, that uh, and so and we also because of commercial surrogacy, we have an idea of what the going rate for nine months of pregnancy when you're gestating for another. Sure, sure, uh, sure. Voluntarily, but you're gestating yeah. for yeah. Yeah. Uh, someone else. So uh, so the I think that once you can think of the womb as rentable property, uh, and I think we can treat the womb differently from other body parts because of gestational surrogacy, sure. uh, and they're, they're unique features of the situation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That would make it different from, you know, me trying to lend you my arm or something. Right. Uh, or, or even organ transplants. Right. Uh, but um, so I think that once you get there and so you have a property interest, uh, then you could think of it as a regulatory taking. You ban abortion, uh, then the state is renting your womb without paying you just compensation. Uh, and the um, legally, I get to the state is renting your womb by way of the safe haven laws. I think every state has the safe haven laws uh, and there are laws that, um, that basically uh, solve the problem of parental rights and responsibilities. It's just, you know, obviously if you give birth to a child, you're the legal mother of that child with all of the <laughs> responsibilities and rights right. that being a parent entails. Right. Uh, but the safe haven laws make it that within a certain time period prescribed by law, if that child is safely delivered to a fire station or some someplace, uh, then your parental rights are terminated. Uh, no one's going to come after you for child support. No one's going to say prosecute you for child neglect. Uh, and what that means, uh, to my mind, it means that the safe haven laws are legally creating a situation in which uh, the pregnant person in an abortion ban state is never the intended parent of the child. Uh, that child is already a ward of the state. 
Uh, and if you think of it that way, then it makes sense conceptually to think of the situation as the womb being rented for free by the state for its own benefit uh, without compensation. And so if you use that theory to challenge the abortion ban, uh, then compensation would be due to everyone who was forced by an abortion ban to carry to term a pregnancy that they did not want. Uh, honestly, if there was any success or even threat of success to such arguments, I think a lot of the states that have these bans uh, would not be able to afford to have I agree. them anymore. I agree. <laughs> and I, I agree. Have so, to repeal them. They'd be bankrupt. Right. So, Julie, I want to make I want to make a um, large point about this, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. This is selfish on my part, so forgive me. Yeah. Um, so so I brought Ilya into our conversation about takings because yeah. he is a takings expert, of which I am not. Yeah. And Ilya yeah. started giving these reasons, these doctrinal reasons why this wouldn't work. I want to yeah. say – I want to make a statement, and I am very okay. confident of this statement. <laughs> Your takings clause argument is as um, persuasive, strong – use any word you want there <laughs> – given current takings clause law. It's more persuasive given take than equal state sovereignty is in the context of of Shelby County. Then most of standing doctrine is completely incoherent, makes no sense, is irrational and illogical. Um, There is nothing in the Constitution, not a syllable about anti-commandeering. There is nothing in the Constitution, not a syllable about states being sued by their own citizens, not being barred, even though that. There's nothing in the Constitution about parents having the right to raise their children, refuse medical treatment, and so on and so forth. So when Ilya came back with all these doctrinal – and again, Ilya's a good friend. I think he's very smart. Why we can't take takings doctrine this way, it made me think of Jack Balkin um, and Jack's famous (laughs) on-the-wall, off-the-wall distinction where some arguments that are completely off-the-wall get to be on-the-wall, the the most famous being – the regulation of a trillion-dollar healthcare industry that affects the commerce of every state is somehow not a regulation of commerce among the states. That was a off-the-wall argument that then five justices eventually put on the wall. Um, yeah. I, I think your takings argument is strong. I think it has resonance to it. And even if a no judge in history ever accepts it, I think it's the right way to view this. The state is co-opting the womb of millions of women who don't want the state in their womb. <laughs> and if that's not yes. a taking, just forget law. If that's not a taking, I don't know what a taking is. Is that fair? Right. <laughs> sure. That's totally fair. So I will say that, you know, I I do a lot of off-the-wall <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> because I also think, I think that they, uh, if you start on the wall, then right. <laughs> the universe is quite limited. Right. And I think a lot of arguments that are successful incrementally over time, you have to persuade people to see things a certain way before the doctrine becomes possible. Yep. And uh, and so I don't, you know, I don't see this argument uh, as necessarily one that's going in a brief tomorrow to right. persuade the people who are sitting on the court now. Right. Uh, but I think that people need to uh, think that it makes sense. Uh, and find ways. Uh, and I can say the same thing about gender quotas. You know, everyone in yeah. the United States, when they hear the word quotas, <laughs> uh, right, it's, yeah. it's it's a very difficult, uh, people yeah. think it's implausible, uh, but sometimes I wonder if they um, don't want to talk about it because they think it's undesirable uh, or because wanting something that's so far away from doctrine will just make them really depressed. 
but I think we're certainly in a space where uh, we might start wanting things that are very far from what the court we currently have will ever deliver the, the, uh, or the Congress that we currently have will ever deliver. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think that democracy dies when uh, we use those conditions to determine what we talk about and theorize about and teach our students about and develop as arguments. For both race and gender, um, mm -hmm. I it makes me lose sleep and I can barely articulate how angry I am that the real, I, I, I have different diagnosis than you do. I think the reason why quotas are so off the table when it comes to both race and gender in this country has nothing less or more to do with two people, Lewis Powell and Sandra Day O'Connor. And if those right. two people in Baki and then Gruder had different perspectives on quotas, we wouldn't have this. And it's so stupid. If we want more mm -hmm. women and, and, and traditionally disadvantaged groups in places of power and government, the easiest, most direct way of doing it as Europe has found it <laughs> is to have quotas. And, 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 and this, this, and, and I, I'm sorry to rant about this, but this very Southern gentleman from Virginia who wrote mm -hmm. the only opinion in Baki that mattered, and it was a one justice opinion that was just, that, that just you know, destroyed quotas right from the beginning. And this woman, right. this wonderful, great woman, Senator Day O'Connor, um, who was raised in the 1960s, born in the fifties and was the most, maybe the most independent person on the court we've ever had in the sense of just what she had to overcome to get there and, and all that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that these two individuals didn't like quotas means the whole country can't have quotas. That's basically what it comes down to. And I just find right. that offensive and insulting and horrible. And I don't know how else to put it. Um, I know what the statistics are about women on boards of directors in America. And it's pathetic. Mm -hmm. It is pitiful. Um, right. Anyway, your, your book does a great job so of eliminating we have to, we have about five more minutes. So I have one last question. Okay, yeah. One last sure. question. Um, but unfortunately, it's a big question. So I'll shut up and let you answer it. Um, it's not a big part of your book either. So that's why I want to talk about it. Um, okay. To me, a big factor in how far we have to go is because of organized religion. Mm -hmm. And um, I once wrote a piece for the Daily Beast. That's yes, that's, I read it. Oh, thank you. Um, where I pointed out that Orthodox Jews, the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. Southern Baptists, et cetera, et cetera, don't allow women to have leadership roles in 2020. Well, I wrote it a few years ago, but even in 2023, that's still true. And that's insane to me. How can the Catholic Church just say, no, women can't be priests? Like, I still can't even believe it today. How much of a role does religion play in keeping women down in this country? So that is a huge question, I and, I, and <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not. Uh, I, I don't think I'm totally equipped to, okay. to fully answer it. Okay. Uh, but I will say that I think many religious traditions are patriarchal. Right. And they're patriarchal for the same reason that our legal order was, like their secular legal order right. uh, was patriarchal, uh, which is that it was a an infrastructure. Uh, for the care and reproduction of the community, right, and um, and so uh, identifying women as being uh, disproportionately and asymmetrically placed to do that care and reproductive work uh, meant that they couldn't be leaders right. uh, in the public sphere. Uh, and so I think that's pretty central to patriarchy and various religious traditions built on that. Right. Uh, so. Um, 
when you get to, uh, I think it has been challenging to use uh, secular principles of equality to dismantle patriarchy uh, in many respects. But one thing that's been really interesting is that um, I suggested earlier that patriarchy is a real problem when patriarchal, patriarchal power is actually abused. Uh, and, and I think that's something uh, that um, if you look at, when I talk about over-empowerment in the more theoretical chapters of the book, I look at the doctrine of abuse of right, not as a feminist doctrine as such, but the abuse of right in many European legal traditions, including the French. It's a property rights doctrine, but it's spread to other areas of law uh, where you're using the right in a way that undermines the uh, purpose of that right. And of course, judges have to engage in a lot of normative reasoning about what that means. But it's been really interesting to see the way that uh, courts in France have dealt with uh, certain patriarchal religious traditions, specifically in the context of divorce mm -hmm. uh, under Jewish law. Uh, you can't get divorced until the, or the, the woman is not recognized as fully divorced until the husband delivers the gap. In, in, in orthodox and, and very conservative circles, certainly not in reform. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, and they get a civil divorce, uh, but uh, the sometimes the husband will refuse to deliver the get. Uh, which uh, hampers her ability to remarry within that community. Yeah. Uh, and um, but it's something that the religion gives him absolute power over because it's patriarchal. Which is insane, but I'm sorry, it's insane. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, it's just insane. Sorry. But very interestingly, uh, in in French courts, uh, women have challenged that uh, by saying that if you withhold the get. Uh, in ways uh, and invoke religious liberties in ways that a harm the woman, but also uh, harm the woman. I mean, very uh, typically, uh, the man would withhold the get uh, to not necessarily because he wanted to stay married and try to reconcile, uh, but to try to just get a better economic um, distribution of resources right. uh, for himself. Uh, and it's been very interesting to see how courts have used the abuse of right doctrine to curb religious liberty uh, by having an understanding of uh, the purpose of both religious liberty and certain doctrines within it uh, in order to curb the influence of patriarchy uh, when it um, when it perpetuates yes. women's yeah. inequality. Uh, so, and, and I do think, uh, so it's really important because I think that the idea of abuse of right can be used not necessarily in litigation, but I think as a concept in constitutional law or the way that we think about uh, various problems of how political power is exercised when it doesn't have to be, uh, how uh, certain discretionary roles uh, including the filibuster, right. uh, can be used uh, right. and abused. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, it's, a, it's a very useful concept uh, for thinking about why uh, patriarchy is much worse than it really can, should be, uh, right. first of all, even though it is itself uh, already unjust. Right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, even, I'm not going to talk about it, but we, and that, all of that doesn't even get into the whole evangelical Republican Party alignment that's taken place that, you know, but in any event, Julie, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. The book again Thank is you. After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. I consider myself 
fairly knowledgeable about these issues. I learned so much from this book. I thought it was inspiring. And please keep screaming the takings issue from the rooftops. I think I, 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 I think there is something about that argument that I think will hit home in ways that other arguments about abortion don't. So I, I really, I really like it. And um, congratulations on the well, book. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you.